Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. What an honor it was today to connect with the legendary Mark Sisson, who is the New York Times bestselling author of the Keto Reset Diet and bestselling book, The Primal Blueprint. He has been integral in turbocharging the growth of the Primal Paleo Movement and is a prolific writer, blogger, and the founder of Primal Kitchen and Primal Nutrition. Today, we dove deep into metabolic health as well as flexibility, nutritional dogmatism, the role of disordered eating in extremes how misguided calories in calories out really is and how that has derailed so many people's quest for health, the role of food scarcity, intermittent fasting, impulse control. And lastly, we dove into mindset as well as how he has been able to navigate having a happy, healthy, well-adjusted family, despite all of the incredible success he has had. I hope you will enjoy this discussion as much as I did recording it. So Mark, it's so nice and such a privilege and an honor to connect with you today. Um, I know that my Everyday Wellness podcast guests will really enjoy this conversation. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Cynthia. Absolutely. So obviously we share a lot of interests and one thing in going through your breadth of work, which spans decades, is your emphasis on metabolic health. And what does that really represent to you? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis for you, Mark? Well, I mean, metabolic health is kind of a catch-all phrase that I guess encompasses uh, the ability of every cell in the body to function optimally with the amount of energy that it needs. Energy is life. Our ability to to supply energy to the cells is critical to our lives, critical to the enjoyment of our lives, mobility, thought, all of these things kind of come back to a central theme, which is access to, to energy. So metabolic health basically describes that. I talk about, and I helped popularize the term metabolic flexibility about starting about 10 years ago, when I realized that so many people don't have this ability to extract energy from multiple substrates. Most people, for various reasons, which we can go into, spend their lives in a sugar burning mode where they're constantly trying to stoke the fire and feed their cells energy by eating a high carbohydrate based diet has a litany of issues that go along with that. But the end result is that you really never get a chance to teach your body how to extract energy from other substrates, such as fat, such as ketones. And in denying your body that ability, you deny yourself energy and life force and a good mood and a healthy metabolism in general and a a robust immune system and all of the things that sort of make for an optimized Life. So metabolic flexibility would describe your body's ability to extract energy from certainly from the carbohydrate that you eat, from the glucose in your bloodstream, from the glycogen stored in your muscles, but also from the fat on your plate of food, or almost most importantly, from the fat stored on your body, on your hips and thighs and belly and wherever else you, you tend to store fat and to access energy from in the form of ketones that your liver can make in the absence of glycogen and glucose to fuel the brain. And once you achieve this this state of metabolic flexibility, 
you are in an entirely new empowered position in your life. You can go long periods of time without having to eat. You get a handle on hunger, appetite, and cravings, which for a lot of people basically directs their calendar every few hours, every day of their lives. It's an amazing skill that we're all born with. It's in all of our DNA to be able to extract this energy from these different substrates. But because of lifestyle choices that not just we make, but our parents made for us when we were very young, we sort of headed down this path of just being really good at burning sugar and not good at burning fats and ketones. I think it's a really important distinction to make. You know, I was raised in the seventies and eighties and my mom was Italian and she was very big on you ate three meals a day and no snacks in between. And she was crunchy before we even knew what that concept was on the East coast. And so if we really look back in our grandparents' generation, there wasn't the advent of all these processed foods and people were more physically active. I was looking at some photos from the 1960s that my parents had shared with me and you really didn't see people that were obese or overweight. And yet that has become the norm. And so there've been so many changes that have occurred over the last 40, 50 years that have really been at the detriment of our metabolic health. And I love that you are touching so eloquently on the fact that our bodies are designed to be able to use different types of fuels. We're not designed to be stuck in this metabolic inflexibility where I would say most, if not all of my patients over the last 20 plus years that were dealing with weight loss resistance and all of the information that we were giving our patients, encouraging them to eat snacks and mini meals and concentrate on heart, healthy grains. We're doing completely the opposite of what our bodies are designed to do. We're designed to burn fat in our bodies. We are not designed to be stuck in the, just the utilization of using stored carbohydrates as a fuel substrate, because it will give us those, you know, issues with cravings and energy slumps and feeling sleepy after meals and being weight loss resistant. And so it's one of those things where when we talk about, as an example, intermittent fasting as one particular strategy that can be beneficial for this, people say, oh, it's a fad. It's just something that's new or novel. And I remind them that some of the things we're talking about date back to an ancestral health perspective. We wouldn't be here as a species if we weren't able to effectively utilize stored energy as a fuel to be able to fuel us through opportunities or times when there is food scarcity. And unfortunately we're in a state, you know, a state here in the United States and most Westernized countries where there's a surplus of food at all times of the day and night. You know, now we have Uber eats, which I told my children, if we ever have Uber eats come to my house, I'm going to feel like we've just completely given up as a family. But I think it's important for people to understand that our modern day lifestyles are putting us in a disadvantaged position in terms of our health on so many levels. Yeah. I mean, you touched on the ancestral life way and, and evolution. I mean, we evolved for millions of years, even before we were human, mammalian evolution going back hundred million years. We evolved with the default setting being scarcity, food scarcity. And so we adapted these mechanisms by which we could, when there was food around, we could overeat. So our brains are literally wired to overeat. We could overeat. And one of the most elegant evolutionary adaptations, we could take excess energy and store it as fuel on our bodies. I mean, if you think about the elegance of that, of that scenario where you don't have to waste food, you literally, if you overeat it, you convert the excess energy, we call it calories, but the excess energy into a fuel that you carry. And I might add, conveniently located over the center of gravity. So instead of having fat on our shoulders and, you know, on our back of our neck, 
we typically tend to store fat around our belly, around our midsection, on the tops of our thighs, not our lower legs, on the lower part of the back, and build out and up from there because it was convenient to carry these extra calories. And I think, you know, our ancient forebears would not have looked upon being 30 pounds, quote, overweight as a bad thing. They would have thought, oh my goodness, this is great. I get to survive long periods of time now when there's no food around. So the ability to store excess fuel, excess calories as fuel, was one of the things that got us here. But it was also the ability to access that stored fuel in the absence of food, not just for a meal or two, but for days at a time, in the absence of new food coming in, to call upon those fuel stores and burn them off in a way that was efficient, metabolically efficient, metabolically effective, didn't cast off any you know, reactive oxygen species or oxidative issues. The development of this ability of the liver to produce just enough ketones to supply the brain in the absence of glucose and to keep the brain not just active, but probably in a fairly good mood most of the time, even in the absence of these calories. I doubt any of our ancestors got hangry. They just said, well, there's no food, but I've got this amazing skill that I can take this stored energy out of storage and burn it until I find food. So these, we all have both of these skills. The problem is most of us, especially in this country, suffer from not being able to burn the calories, but being still very good at storing the calories, which is exacerbated, as you alluded, by what I would call, you know, an abundance of crappy food, crunchy, salty, fatty, sweet, appealing food that is accessible all the time, everywhere, coupled with a lack of impulse control. I think a lot of people know that they shouldn't be eating this often and this much, but it's wired into our brains to do that. It takes a bit of discipline to not do that. And then as you and I both know, once you utilize the discipline over a period of a few weeks, it becomes easier and easier to understand how little food you actually need to have all the energy you want, to have all the muscle mass you need, to not get sick, and most importantly, all the food you need to not be hungry. Well, I think that's an important distinction. And you're alluding to you know, discipline, which makes me reflect on mindset. And I always say mindset is everything in terms of you know, looking at what our goals are, how we're going to get from where we are to where our goals are, whether it's, I'm going to choose no longer to snack, whether that's going to be, I'm going to eat within a 12 hour feeding window, whether that's, I'm going to go lift weights. What have you found to be some of the more pressing positive attributes when it comes to, you know, moving towards those goals and that motivation, because obviously you are an incredible example of this. You know, obviously I've had the opportunity to meet you in person. You probably don't remember. I I literally wasn't paying attention and bumped into you at an event and you were so polite, but I remember after I realized who it was, I was like, you really are the living example of everything that you are purporting. And that's why I think it's so important to get this information out there that, you know, it is much more challenging as we get older, not challenging in a bad way. I always say like I'm 50 And what I do now is a little different than what I did even five or 10 years ago, but it's continuously fine tuning what we're doing to get us closer to our goals. Yeah. I mean, I would say that sort of number one problem we have as humans is we tend to see what we can get away with. You know, we tend to take it right up to the edge because why would you want to be living a restrictive, monastic, dedicated lifestyle if there were no negative implications? both in the long term or in the short term. And so people 
might know that they shouldn't eat this much, or they might know that they ought to exercise a little bit more, or they might know that they probably should do a little bit more at work. But people tend to see what they can get away with. What's the least amount of work I can do and still keep my job? You know, what's the most amount of food I can eat and not gain weight? Or what's the most amount of food I can eat and only gain a pound or two a year? And, you know, it it won't be. So we tend to live on that edge of what can I get away with rather than to pull back a little bit and say, well, you know, what's another way of looking at this? And with regard to food, you know, I did a thought experiment a bunch of years ago and I said, well, you know, we've always... And I'm guilty of this as well, because of the unfettered access to food and the lack of impulse control and the fact that we're wired to eat crunchy, salty, fatty, sweet things. I certainly lived a life of what's the most amount of food I can eat. Look, when I was a marathon runner, I ate six, seven thousand calories a day. I had a thousand grams of carbs every single day. A lot of it was, you know, the kind of stuff that I would never touch today. It was bread, rice, pasta, pizza, beer. A lot of these things I felt I needed in order to fuel the running that I was doing as a marathoner. I was doing hundred miles a week, you know, training. I weighed 30 pounds less than I do now. So I could get away with all of this. I could get away with being a glutton, but I know in retrospect, it wasn't good for me. It was a highly inflammatory diet. It caused arthritis, uh, it caused irritable bowel syndrome. It caused a number of defects in my immune system that allowed me to get colds and flu five, six times a year. All of these things weren't apparent to me because I wasn't gaining weight, because I wasn't getting fat. I could get away with eating a lot of food. And I think a lot of people in the US right now, those who aren't even, I have friends who are you know, ostensibly very fit and very healthy, who only work out just so they can eat more food. So it really is, it's an interesting you know, existential dilemma to look at this and go, well, all right. So instead of looking at what's the most amount of food I can eat and get away with, What's the least amount of food I can eat? What's the minimum effective dose of food that I can eat, maintain or build muscle mass, have all the energy I want, never get sick, but most importantly, not be hungry. If I can reduce the amount of food I take in and not be hungry, that's a great thing. That is an example of maybe how our ancestors probably lived. And that looks like different things to different people. It might be going keto for a while. It might be intermittent fasting for a while. It might be fractal eating for a while. In other words, no meals someday, three meals other days, kind of mixing it up. But for everybody, I would say that the one thing that most Americans share is we eat too much food. And if we could figure out a strategy to reduce the amount of food we take in, again, still maintain muscle mass and be robust and have a healthy immune system, have all the energy we want and still not be hungry and not be driven by cravings. That's the ideal situation. My new favorite protein powder is by Equip Foods. It is the safest, cleanest, doctor-formulated protein powder for building muscle and shedding fat that won't leave you gassy and bloated like so many other brands do. It's 100% grass-fed and finished beef protein powder that's good for your gut and tastes delicious. We know that one in three adults don't consume enough protein, and it's certainly a topic we discuss on the podcast with regularity. And if you want to help build muscle and lose fat and keep your immune system strong and have all-day energy, 
energy, you want to be ensuring that you're consuming adequate protein throughout the day. And actually, if you are north of 40 years old, as I talk about on the podcast quite a bit, we need more protein with age and not less. Each scoop of Prime Protein's doctor-formulated beef isolate protein powder has 21 grams of protein. And with only a small handful of ingredients, you're getting only what you need, 100% carefully sourced real foods and nothing else. No junk, no additives, no allergens, no chemicals or fillers. And let's be clear, it tastes really good. My personal favorite is chocolate as well as peanut butter. But in my house, vanilla and strawberry are also super popular. Their products are 100% grass fed. They prioritize working with regenerative farms who let their cows graze outside and source the highest quality grass fed beef protein that can be found. They work with small farms in Sweden who are dedicated to humanely raising their cattle and it's independently tested. Additionally, beef protein is packed with things like collagen, gelatin and micronutrients that your body needs. They work to help repair joints and soft tissues like plant-based proteins won't. With six different flavors, including the ones that I mentioned are my family favorites, there are endless recipes, possibilities. They also have an unflavored variety. It's smooth. It blends easily. You don't have to use a blender. It has no funky aftertaste. It tastes amazing with just water, can be mixed into hot or cold recipes, and has over 2,000 five-star reviews and counting. And it comes with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't love it after 30 days, they will give you a full refund. So the easiest way to check this product out is to go to equipfoods.com slash Cynthia 20. That's equipfoods, E-Q-I-P foods.com slash Cynthia 20 for 20% off your first order. Remember, my favorite flavors are chocolate and peanut butter, but in my house, vanilla and strawberry are close seconds. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. I couldn't agree more. And, and it's really interesting because I was, you know, thinking thoughtfully about our discussion today. And one thing that I come to find almost without exception when people start eating, restructuring their macros, irrespective of what dogmatic principles they're aligned with, they stop snacking and they get to a point where they're satiated. So, you know, so many people are never satiated. They just eat and eat and eat. I have teenagers at my house and I have very athletic boys and their ability to eat food all day long and they're eating healthy food, but they're still growing. They're still getting, but for the average adult in the United States, they don't experience true satiety 
until they get to a point where they're really hitting their protein macros and they're really eating nutrient dense foods and they're not governed by these powerful and profound cravings. And I remind men and women that cravings are oftentimes your body's way of communicating that you're not meeting a need in some degree or another. And I think many, many people go their probably entire adult lifetime being led by never being satiated and just having chronic and habitual cravings, likely for those hyper palatable, highly processed foods that you were alluding to, which unfortunately are the bulk of what most Americans are consuming. Yeah. Overfed and undernourished. I mean, that's really the status of most Americans now. And I read a statistic on the internet, so it must be true the other day <laughs> that 34, the average intake, caloric intake in the American diet is 3,400 calories a day. I'm like, holy smokes, that is like literally more than twice as, as many calories as most people need to thrive. Like literally twice as many calories. So if you look at, if you break down the macros and you go, well, okay, Mark, so what do you, what do you mean by that? Because that doesn't sound right because you know, the, even the USDA might say 20, what's the number? 2,400 calories is, is sort of an average number. But if you, like how many people need more than hundred grams of protein a day, right? How many? Not many people. Almost nobody needs more than 150 grams of protein a day, right? So even if you take 150 grams of protein a day, that's 600 calories right there. Okay. Then if you just say, all right, let's say you get hundred grams of fat. Some of it's saturated, some of it uh, monounsaturated, a little bit of, uh, you know, omega-3s. You get 100 grams of fat. That sounds like a big number. Well, it's only 900 calories. So now with 150 grams of protein, 100 grams of fat, we're only at 1,500 calories. And if you make the rest up with carbohydrate, and we know most people don't need more than 150 grams of carbs a day, which again is 600 calories. I mean, we literally get, where are we at? We're at 2,100 calories, right? That's like, that would fuel just about anybody but a 6-5, you know, a lineman in the NFL or, a, you know, an overly large person. And yet the average American intake apparently is 3,400 calories a day. It is bizarre almost in, its, in the enormity of that. Well, and I think it's, you know, Dr. Gabrielle Line always says that we are overfed and under-muscled. And I know that we both share a passion for strength training and maintaining metabolic flexibility also vis-a-vis maintaining our musculature and how critically important this is. I remind people all the time that sarcopenia, this muscle loss with aging, isn't a question of if, but when, if you are not working against it. And you talked about that hundred grams of protein per day being something we should all be aiming for. And I tell people all the time that if you're hitting 45, 50 grams of protein in a meal, you're full, at least, I mean, I should say, I should speak in the context of, you know, a woman, I eat 50 grams of protein. I'm full. I'm not looking for more food and I will not be hungry again for four or five hours. And so I think that's really a good benchmark. Now, in terms of strength training, obviously I know this is something that you are a proponent of as well. Do you find that a lot of people are surprised to understand that their muscles are involved in this metabolic flexibility piece as well? I think that's an easy explanation. I think that's a two sentence explanation and people get it. I mean, if you describe, you know, how much of what happens with the body as a result of the muscles moving through time and space and the muscles are the ones that are employing most of the energy substrates that you understand that. I think one of the dangers here is that people will say, oh, so that means that if I have more muscle, I can eat more food. I mean, that's sort of what, that's sort of the, again, we get back to that what is it about you wanting to eat more food? Like I'll give an example. So 
we have this, these discussions about thyroid health quite often. And people say, well, you know, my doctor says my thyroid is low and I should start being concerned about that. And of course, I, my response is, how do you feel? Well, I feel great. I mean, you know, I have energy. Are you cold? No, I'm not cold at all. And I feel great. Are you losing hair? No, my hair is full. So let me get this straight. So your doctor says that your thyroid is on the low end of the spectrum. It's the low end of the normal range and is concerned about you. And yet here you are asymptomatic and having a great time and enjoying life. I would argue that, well, it says my doctor is concerned about my metabolism slowing down. I'm like, okay. And tell me what's wrong about that. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, if I get too slow metabolism, then I'll start to gain weight. I'm like, you know, again, this is a false logic. I would say that people in general who are on the low end of the thyroid normal range, and I'm one of them, who have all the energy and who have muscle mass and who aren't cold and who love, you know, uh, cold plunges and things like that, that you're winning the because the thyroid is revving your engine at a very well-tuned low RPM, right? And you're not burning off excess calories. You're not running high. You're not running hot. Whereas people tend to think, well, I got to get my metabolism up. I got to boost my metabolism so I can burn more calories. Okay. Why do you want to burn more calories? Well, so I can eat more. Again, it's like, okay, what is this fixation with eating if we recognize that at some point you're no longer hungry? So we go back to Cynthia's statement that 45 grams of protein at a meal is pretty damn satiating. It is. It's really satiating. And there's no reason to eat more than that. So if 45 grams of protein, which again is only a, that's 180 calories. Now you got some carbs there. Maybe you got some you know, some other stuff going on, but it's not a huge meal. And yet it's so satiating that if you are in tune with your, with everything else that's going on, you push the plate away and say, that's it. I don't need another serving, another helping, or even to finish the rest of this 32 ounce porterhouse or whatever it is. So, you know, it's funny, like my wife, uh, who's very fit, but she's been working on her butt. It's like literally, you know, it's a chick thing, right? In the last five or eight years, whether it's, you know, Nicki Minaj or the Kardashians or J-Lo or whatever, but nice butts are in. So my wife says, well, that's my new thing. I want to work on my butt. And so she goes to her, she's a trainer, a female trainer. and trainer. She's got to get 145 grams of protein a day. And my wife says, well, that, that should be easy. Jesus, that's a lot. That is a lot. And she's always like complaining about how full she is and how stuffed she is. And she's not eating a lot of carbs and she's not eating a ton of fat. She's just trying to get the 145 grams of protein in a day. It's a lot of food. If you, you know, if you eat it in the context of some meat, some fish, some chicken or whatever. Right. So, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And she's got, she's getting really strong too. I mean, she did, uh, you know, the hip thrusts, you know, the, that you do for the glutes. Yep. She did uh, six reps of 325 the other day, uh, which I mean, I couldn't come close to that. So, so yeah, you gotta, you need protein to build the muscle, but the idea that you should uh, do all this just so you can deserve more food or eat more food. If you think about it, if you really, you know, reduce it to the absurd essential elements, it's pretty, pretty funny that we think that way. Yeah. And I, I think it's really the reframe that I always use with patients is we want to maintain insulin sensitivity. Like that is critically important. And people may or may not understand that we actually become insulin resistant in our muscles first. And that's why it's so, so important to maintain 
lean muscle as we're getting older. You know, I, I think when I was in my twenties and thirties, I was still very focused on cardio. And I, I think that's even probably the dogmatic principles we were telling our patients. And as I've gotten older, it's been more about educating people, even if it's body weight exercise to start, but really working on, you know, the strength training piece, like what your wife is doing is incredible. I'm not even at that point yet doing hip thrusts that heavy. So she is very strong, which I think is fantastic. Now, when we're talking about gender differences, because I know you have a lot of content on this as well. And I think one of my favorite articles of yours was talking about the gender differences about men versus women with fasting. And I think this is an important point because there's this kind of mindset that, you know, gender is not important as it pertains to any type of principle that we're talking about, whether it's a ketogenic diet lifestyle, whether it's low carb, whether it's thyroid function, whether it's, you know, intermittent fasting, strength training, et cetera, but there are differences. And so one of the best articles that I read of yours recently, and actually I think this article was written a few years ago, but it was talking about the differences between men and women, even when they're intermittent fasting or they're eating less often that we really do have to lean into our physiology. And you and your team did such a nice job on this because it's really speaking to the fact that you know, throughout our lifetime, again, irrespective of gender, we have to be cognizant of what our body's primary purposes are. And so when we're younger and we're at peak fertile years, you know, under age of 35, you have to do things a little differently than you do as you're getting older. I think it becomes a little bit more deliberate. You know, you were talking about this kind of delayed gratification that maybe when people are younger, they're thinking, oh, I'm going to do X so that I can eat more. And then as you're getting older, you're like, well, I'm going to do X because it actually allows me to sleep better. It allows my clothes to fit the way I want them to, allows me to have the energy to chase after kids and grandkids. And I think that's the emphasis that I think is so important. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a point at which I guess you'd say, you have to hit bottom in order to make the decision, right? And so when movement becomes painful, you start to rethink your dietary intake or you start to think maybe you should spend a little bit more time in the gym. So these are not just, they're sort of universal across male and female. But, you know, if we go back to the essential elements of, of what we're talking about with regard to energy production, for instance, and storing energy versus burning it, you know, the old ancient wisdom of, calories in calories out is wrong. It's basically misguided. It's, you know, hundred, 2000 calories of Oreos is not the same as 2000 calories of grass fed steak and, and salad. Right. So we go back to, well, what does that look like? Why is it, it? So it's really calories stored versus calories burned. This is what we're trying to address. And how we address that is a hormonal equation. There's so many hormones involved in this. It's not just some magic. You eat something and it burns off. There's a lot of hormonal input into what we're doing. So certain types of food generate certain types of hormonal responses. The classic one is the insulin response to carbohydrate. You've got insulin, you've got the counter regulatory hormone glucagon, which can produce glycogen in the absence. You've got leptin and ghrelin, which are sort of working in opposites with regard to hunger and, and fulfillment or the sensation of hunger. Then you've got testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, uh, you've got like a cascade of neurotransmitters, and all of these are basically signaling devices that act on receptor sites and tell the cell what to do. Do I allow access into the cell? Do I prevent access into the cell? Do I? There's so many different things going on at the level of hormones, thyroid, I just uh, described. And now when we talk about the difference between the sexes, male and female have different really hormone and hormonal influences at different times of life, 
at different times of the month. And so these are not to be overlooked in this giant equation of how do I eat to optimize my body composition and my energy levels. Now, when we talk about men and fasting and keto, it's pretty easy for men. I mean, virtually all men who really aggressively go after metabolic flexibility through a ketogenic approach or through some form of intermittent fasting combined with keto get some modicum of success from pretty damn good to exceptional. Women go from, I didn't really like it and it was uncomfortable and it didn't make me feel right and intuitively was wrong for me to, yeah, it was crazy successful. And so we have to kind of look at the female application of this and say, okay, now this gets, gets really interesting. Now we're really talking about an experiment of one. Now we're talking about a whole range of variables that we have to put into this equation. How old are you? What time of the month is it? What sort of eating history do you have in terms of your mental attachment to eating? Is it, do you have a body dysmorphia? Do you have a, a PTSD from an event, a traumatic event earlier in your life? which certainly men do too, but on the female side, it has, it impacts women differently. So it really becomes a very much more complex equation for women. Now, this isn't to say that I can't take a template and overlay it and say, start with this, but pay really close attention to how you feel, to your energy levels, to your mood, to your thoughts, and really kind of tweak it over time to see what works best. Maybe if your husband is working with an 18-hour window of not eating and, a, and just a six-hour window of eating, maybe that's not going to work for you. Maybe 12 is fine. You know, maybe there's some adjustment that you need to make that's going to be ideal for you at this time of your life, even at this time of the month. That's Sorry to be so obtuse about the whole thing. I don't have answers here. I have partial explanations, I guess. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to try 
armra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. No, you did a beautiful job. And I, I think it really speaks to the N of one that we may be able to take pieces of different nutritional dogmas and eating windows, whether that's, you know, a 12 hour kind of broad, you know, feeding window, or if it's a tighter feeding window and finding and experimenting what works best. What I find for so many people is that they've been so accustomed to being told what to do that when I say to them, experiment, it makes them very uncomfortable for a lot of different reasons. And I love that you, you know, tangibly touched on the concept of, you know, our influences, whether it's trauma or our relationships with food, because I do see on social media, as I'm sure you do as well, that, you know, fasting, I'm using fasting as one example, that a lot of people that have a disordered relationship with food are able to kind of hide their anorexia or their binge eating tendencies underneath the guise of binge eating. And I think we really have to be, I say we, as in collectively, those of us that are in this health and wellness space just need to be, you know, leaning into the fact that people can utilize or, you know, use this umbrella term to describe their habits and use it as a way to kind of deflect attention from what's really going on. But I do find what's interesting more often than not, I had more female patients that had emotional relationships with food. They ate for reasons other than just hunger. They would eat because they were stressed or they were trying to suppress uncomfortable feelings. And it was a way to kind of work around that. And I think that, you know, when we talk about disordered eating, we have to actually speak very openly about it without judgment, 
because it seems like there's so many people that have suffered for a really long time and they just, maybe they haven't been even been aware of how their, whether it was their childhood, their early adult years have really influenced their relationship with food quite significantly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I haven't talked about this a lot and I won't go too much into it, but when I was 13, 14, I was anorexic. I was a male anorexic. I wasn't horribly, you know, disfigured from it, but there were a couple of years where I had a problem with food and I restricted what I ate. And I don't, I don't know what the basis of that was, but I certainly got over it because within about five years, I was that guy eating inordinate amounts of food. And by then I was a top endurance runner. So I sort of knew I was burning it off and everything was, even I had sort of a, an unhealthy relationship with food for a while in my teen years. Well, and I think it's fairly normal to have periods of time. I know that when I was in my early forties and I'd never experienced weight loss resistance. And when that happened for me, it was, you know, here I am, I'm on this platform talking about, you know, being, you know, healthy and fit and all these things. And all of a sudden I couldn't get the weight off. And for me, it was very humbling to say, okay, I, I've had this experience. It probably happened for a purpose, a pain to purpose situation. That's what kind of got me into intermittent fasting. But I think for each one of us, we probably have had moments in our lives where we've been like, okay, I had this moment where this happened and now I'm using it for a greater purpose. One thing I do want to talk on is because you've been in this space for such a significant amount of time, the degree of nutritional dogmatism that I'm seeing probably over the last four to five years, what something that I find really refreshing about your opinions and, and content that you and your team put out is that you really advocate for a very flexible perspective instead of being rigidly dogmatic. And I feel like on a lot of places on social media, Twitter being one of them, people get very rigid. And I think it's important for us to maintain some degree of giving ourselves grace and giving ourselves opportunity to try different things. Because as an example, I've been low carb and carb cycling for a long time. I don't do well as an example with animal based fats. Like I don't do well with lard and tallow. Although when I eat meat, I tend to eat leaner meat because that's what works best for me. But if I did a really traditional ketogenic diet, like a lot of my other friends do, I probably wouldn't be doing quite as well. And so I, I remind people all the time to experiment, to try different things, to not be so rigid, but I love that you and your message is always one of find what works for you and embrace it. Look, at the end of the day, what we're here for is to make the most of the opportunity that life gives us. And included in that is what is the most amount of pleasure, enjoyment, satisfaction, fulfillment, love I can extract from life every possible moment. And so I think you can't exclude food from that list. So I tell people, yeah, you would look at, at my physique over the last 10 or 15 years. I maintain the same, you know, body fat level. I'm pretty well built for a 69 year old guy. You know, I don't, it's not that I'm depriving myself of anything. I enjoy every single bite of food I put in my mouth. And when I've had enough, I know I've had enough. And I'm like, oh, great, I'm, I'm satisfied. I got it. I got the experience. I don't need to eat more to prove that I can or that I can get away with it. I've developed this intuitive sense of, of when enough is enough. And I'm happy with that. And that's sort of my dream for all of my readers and adherents is I want you to have that intuitive ability to not only to know when enough is enough, but to also be able to taste the cheesecake or the chocolate lava cake or whatever is striking your fancy at the time and not obsess about the guilt factor for having done so. 
you know, it really is about, I think, you know, we talk about enjoyment and fulfillment, but how do you feel? And if you feel guilty because you overate, that's not a good thing. If you feel a profound sense of FOMO because you didn't try any of what it was that you wanted, that's also not a good thing. So there's a mid range here where, you know, two bites of cheesecake ain't going to kill you either now or later, you know, 2000 bites of cheesecake, probably going to reduce your risk of living, you know, that long, lean, happy, healthy life you want. But it's really arriving at a at an area where you feel comfortable about your choices and not just in food, but in the rest of your life. You know, as long as you are living your life in a way that makes you feel comfortable with the choices that you make. And in the event that you feel uncomfortable about the choices you make, you have the ability to forget, forgive, move on, go back to whatever. This is the essence of life. You know, the tagline of my company is live awesome. And so all of these things that we talk about are just pieces of a puzzle that you put together that create a picture of life. And it's the working out, it's the playing, and it's the spending time with with loved ones. And it's all these little pieces that we put together that create an awesome life. So yeah, food's part of it, but food's not all of it. And enjoyment of food is part of it. So the dogmatic approach to food would be something that I would say, no, absolutely watch out for that and develop this intuitive ability to make these choices and be okay with whatever choice it is that you make. I think that's really important, you know, finding some degree of freedom in your personal life and being able to have a healthy relationship with food, I think is so important. I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask for, you know, there were a lot of entrepreneurs that reached out and said, you know, can you ask Mark how he has been able to cultivate balance? Obviously you have a very happy, healthy marriage. You have beautiful children. From what I understand, you just welcomed a new grandchild. What has been the secret or what has been the prevailing way that you've been able to find and cultivate balance in your personal and professional life? Because obviously you've been incredibly successful. And I would imagine that having a very strong relationship with your spouse has contributed to a lot of what you've been able to do. But for people that are maybe younger entrepreneurs that are looking to you and saying, you know, I want to be able to achieve a happy, healthy balance in my personal and professional life would have been some of the, the strategies or some of the things that have really allowed you to maintain it. And balance is elusive. So let me, I'm using that word, but that's probably not the best way to say it. What has been the way that you've been able to cultivate per, having a healthy, happy personal life along with a lot of professional success? Yeah. I mean, it's probably a book there for me because I feel like I've been blessed with making a lot of mistakes that turned into successes. I tell my kids that I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up until I was 47. And then I changed my mind again at 61. So part of it is an openness. I'm going to speak about this from an entrepreneurial perspective. So I was always entrepreneurial from the age of 12. I mowed lawns, I painted houses, I had a painting contracting business. I put myself through through college doing that. I put off going to med school because that business was so successful. I started frozen yogurt shop in the 80s. I started a restaurant in the mid eighties. I you know, published books early on, even before any of the stuff that most of us know about here. And I kept at every step of the way, I was passionate about what I wanted to do. I was focused on the goal, but I, had, I did not have attachment to the outcome. So I think one of the things is to not have attachment to the outcome of your goal. Be passionate and have purpose and be mindful and you know, be smart about the business that you're engaging in, but don't have an attachment to the outcome and be open to whatever door shuts. There's probably two more that are opening and be aware of that. 
Now, with regard to the balance of family, I was never one to put in 80 hours a week of work. I think that's a huge, not just a mistake, a joke among a lot of entrepreneurs. I think it's people who say they work 80 hours a week aren't working 80 hours a week. They're avoiding their families 80 hours a week, or they're, you know, they're trying to prove themselves that they're superhuman and they're doing the work. And that's one of the things I see from a lot of the so-called business gurus on Instagram about you got to do the work, you got to put the time in, blah, blah, blah. No, I think you got to be smart and you have to be balanced. And so I started my company, the one that eventually grew into Primal Kitchen. I started as a supplement company in 1997. I had a wife and two kids. I had no money in the bank. I started a business that I had no uh, necessarily any promise of success, but I was really fully intent on making it work. And ultimately I made it work. However, I did not forego time with my kids or my wife. So I coached Little League. I refed soccer games. I went to every soccer practice. I went to every soccer game. And to this day, my kids who are now, my daughter's 31, my son's 28, they will remind me that the single greatest thing I ever gave them was my time. So again, if you look at what is life and what is a successful life, you know, if you have a successful business, but a wife who divorces you or hates you and kids who are removed or remote because you put in so much time, is that really what you wanted out of life, right? I think people want, if in general, if we look at what is this human experience, having a significant other, having uh, children is probably the greatest gift and probably mandate that humans have. You don't pass the genetic material along to the next generation. If I, want to, if I really want to reduce this to base, basic terms, we are here to procreate and pass the genetic material along to the next generation and hopefully do so in a leaving them better off than we came into the world. Part of leaving them better off is nurturing and spending time with them, making them feel loved, making them feel supported, making sure that they have the skills on their own to do all these things. So back to what did my balanced life look like? I did spend time with my wife. I took vacations. We, I did a lot of stuff with my kids. And when I worked, I worked hard. But when I didn't work, I was focused on spending time with the family. Well, and I, I think that so eloquently put in, and certainly, you know, part of the impetus for asking you that question was my own selfish desire to hear your response. Because, you know, I just moved from a, a very a part of the United States where people are very driven and there were a lot of uh, families where both parents worked and, you know, kids were being raised by other people and there's no judgment to any of those choices that we make. But one of the things about living in my new city is it's a little slower pace. There's more time for togetherness with my now teenagers uh, who seem to be getting bigger by the day. And what you said about time, the most valuable thing we can give our children is our time. And I, I would argue it's probably the same with a spouse or a significant other. And I really think it makes such a big difference. And a lot of people don't realize, I mean, I'm feeling this now, the push-pull of parenting, because I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old, and one is starting to look at colleges, and the other one's entering high school in August. And I was saying to my husband, it's like, you blink, and your kids are grown up. And so for all those people who think they need to work 80 to 100 hours a week, you don't. You have to be efficient with your time. It's something that after coming off of a book launch this year, we go on vacation next week. And I told my family, I am unplugging and I'm really excited about it. And I think for all of us that are entrepreneurs, or if we have, you know, for any of us that have roles outside of the gender, normal gender roles, 
the recognition that time is fleeting and you really want to make sure you're spending it the way that you should be. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to know, what are you working on next? Are you contemplating a book? I know that you probably have a lot on your plate, even though you're getting ready to step away and take a vacation yourself. Yeah. So I'm pretty much always on vacation now, which is a weird concept, but I think COVID proved to me for sure. And to a lot of other people that you can do, you can still be very productive with a laptop and a zoom connection, you know, and a cell phone. So I'm embarking on a four month um, trip on like in two days. So looking forward to that. And a little bit of trepidation there because I just started a new business with my son. So speaking of the success and entrepreneurial ventures, my son is a co-founder with me in a new minimalist shoe company that we've started. And we're anticipating a launch of our product somewhere around November. We think it's going to revolutionize footwear. So we're very excited about that. That's amazing. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Enjoy your vacation. And I look forward to hearing more about your new venture. It's been a pleasure to connect with you. Likewise. Thanks, Cynthia. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.